Members of the jury, have you reached your verdict? Yes, we have, Your Honor. We, the members of the jury, find the defendant... You'd really like to know what's written on here, wouldn't you? You don't even know the situation. You don't even know who's on trial. You don't know the circumstance. But it illustrates, doesn't it, that one of the most emotionally climactic moments that we could ever experience is in a courtroom. Courtrooms, and when the verdict is being delivered, are amazing. They keep us on the edge of our seats. You can probably think of some famous trials, can't you, depicted in movies, where you're just wondering what is going to happen next. Or perhaps in recent years, you can think of trials that have been broadcast wide, you know, worldwide. Some of you may be old enough to remember this saying, if the glove won't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, you can come talk to me afterwards. But <laughs> What draws us in is trying to determine who is guilty and who's not guilty. And we're, we're all fascinated with justice, aren't we? It grips us. And sometimes the drama is heightened by seeing the most unlikely of people in the place of the accused. That was the premise for a collection of essays that C.S. Lewis put together in this last century, and he called it God in the Dock. Now, if you're sitting next to someone from the U.K. or from England, they'll help you know that God in the Dock means... God on trial. So the dock was that wooden railing behind which the defendant would sit or stand during the proceedings of the trial. And Lewis used this, this title because he proposed that modern people didn't consider themselves to be on trial before God. No, they didn't even consider the possibility that they were guilty of anything in particular. Modern people instead tend to think of God being on trial, that he's the one who must prove himself to us. He must make his case and let us determine the verdict for him. Of course, there was one time in history when God was literally on trial. And it's the subject of our passage this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. This week we're continuing our series of servant songs. That's what they're called in the book of Isaiah. There's four of them. And with each new passage that we've come to, this is the third, new things are being revealed about this servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks about. Listen and follow along carefully as I read this third servant song. Isaiah chapter 54 through 11, recorded and spoken 700 years before the life of Christ. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, 
my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. We're listening to the voice of Isaiah as we read this 2,700 years after it was recorded, and we have the benefit of being able to read the New Testament as well. Because of that, we know that Jesus and his apostles believed that he himself was the main and last fulfillment of the servant of the Lord referred to in these passages. So Matthew, referring to Jesus' healing of the sick in chapter 12 of his gospel, says in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he directly quotes from the first servant song from Isaiah 42. Matthew knew it was Jesus being referred to in those passages in Isaiah. Even more convincingly, Jesus himself says in Luke 22, verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and there he's quoting from Isaiah 53, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So in this passage, Jesus himself, you see, is speaking through Isaiah about his perfect loving obedience to the sovereign Lord. The, sov- the servant son obeying the sovereign father. Now here's what you'll see, here's what we'll see about his obedience. And this might be a helpful outline for you if you're taking notes. This is what we'll see about his obedience. The servant's obedience was learned. The servant's obedience was tested. The servant's obedience was vindicated. And lastly, we'll look at the judgment of the rebellious. This passage about the servant opens in his own first-person voice, and he tells about how the Lord has instructed him and taught him. Verse 1, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue, or in other words, a disciple's tongue. The servant is describing himself as an apprentice learner listening to his master. It says, he, the master, wakens me morning by morning. To do what? To listen like one being taught. It is an amazing 
thought to ponder that Jesus, fully God and fully man, learned from God the Father. One member of the Trinity learned from another member of the Trinity. He learned in obedience what to do and what to say. Specifically, it says he learned the word that sustains the weary. Now, this compassionate word would remind us of of how the servant is gentle and loving, like what is described in chapter 42, the servant song that's there, where he's described as someone who would mend broken and bruised reeds and fan into flame smoldering wicks. It's a comforting truth, isn't it? To see that the Father is instructing the servant son, Jesus, to care so lovingly for the people he's created. But how in the world, how in the world, other than here in Isaiah, can we say that Jesus the Son learned from the Father? I mean, that's something we should explore. Jesus is God, after all, right? For one... Throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus acting in a way that indicates his dependence on God the Father. He's so often drawing away from the crowds and going to do what? To pray. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he says, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Do you hear hints of Morning by morning, he's waking me to instruct me there. But most of all, when we're considering Jesus learning from the Father, I'd commend to you the words of Jesus himself. Just thumb through the pages of the Gospel of John, and there's hardly a page there without a reference of Jesus speaking directly about him obeying the Father. John 5.19, John 5.30, John 6.38... 8, 29, chapter 10, verse 18, chapter 12, verse 49. And that's just some of what I found when I was skimming through the book of John this past week. Let me read to you just one of them from chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Jesus was always listening to the Father and obeying Him in love. What we're seeing here is an amazing aspect of the Trinity. The Trinity, of course, which is the three persons that make up the one God. We believe that the Scripture teaches that all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equally God. And that they are equally eternal. In other words, none of them had a beginning. They all have existed eternally together. And they all share the same attributes and power. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells or lives in bodily form. So Jesus is fully God. But there is a difference in roles. An eternal difference, I might add. The Son is sent by the Father and obeys Him. Likewise, the Scriptures teach us that the Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. But different roles don't mean different attributes, power, importance, or value. 
And so it is with us in the body of Christ, his church, of course. Think about it. Children are not less important to God than their parents, are they? And yet they're told to obey their parents. Wives aren't of less importance to God than husbands, and yet they're instructed to respect and submit to the loving leadership of their husbands. Members aren't less important than deacons and elders to God, yet they're to serve under the authority of those put over them. Residents of the UAE, okay, we can even think about it in the context of the country we live in. Residents of the UAE are not less important to God than Sheikh Khalifa. Yet we're called to obey him and the laws that he puts into place insofar as we're not, we're not told to do something that's disobedient to what God has taught us. So, if Sheikh Khalifa tomorrow passes a law that says that we're all to drive 30 kilometers an hour maximum on Sheikh Zayed Road, you better leave a little earlier for work. A lot earlier, maybe. We learn from the relationship between the servant son to the sovereign father in their Trinitarian community that submitting to authority and obedience is good and right. It's the way God has made us and arranged us. Are you resentful of those over you in authority just because they're over you? Not because they've done something wrong. Are you resentful that you're called to obey in certain, perhaps difficult circumstances and situations that God has put you in? You honor God when you live obediently to the authority that He's put you under, just as the Son honored the Father. Even when you suffer abuse for obeying. And that takes us into the next verses that we see in this passage that the servant son's obedience was tested, tested by suffering abuse. That's the second point about obedience. He wasn't just tested by suffering any old abuse. He was tested by these violent adversaries. In verse 7, the servant tells us that he's listened to the sovereign Lord, and he wasn't rebellious. He didn't draw back, as he puts it. But why would, have, why would he draw back from something that the sovereign Lord would tell him? Well, of course, because the Lord had instructed him to do something that would result in suffering. He offers his back to those who beat him. He offers his cheek to those who would pull out his beard. He offers his face to those who would mock him and spit on him. And all of a sudden, we've gone from what seems like quiet mornings of instruction with God between the servant and the sovereign Lord to brutal and humiliating physical attacks by those who are opposed to this servant. What a shift. Surely, Jesus was pointing us and pointing his disciples back to these well-known passages when he taught them on the road to Jerusalem. With the passage that Shannon read to us earlier. Let me just read a little bit of it again. Mark chapter 10, 33 and 34. Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later he will rise. 
It is hard to fathom, isn't it, that Jesus knew for the entire three years of his ministry that he would end up in Jerusalem during the Passover and that they would brutalize him. And yet he went there in obedience, loving obedience because of his great love for us. Philippians 2 verse 8 is a beautiful, beautiful description of this. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's more, we see that the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience as he willingly submitted to the abuse and the torture. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 are fascinating verses that shed light on this. They say, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. You understand, don't you? You understand about obedience. It's one thing to obey and see the benefits of obedience, the the fruits of obedience, the blessings of obedience. There's some incentive in obeying oftentimes, isn't there? For example, if you're fortunate, you do a good job at work. You might get a pat on the back. You might even get a raise for your obedience. It's another lesson in obedience altogether to obey and suffer abuse and humiliation and in Jesus' case, death because of it. But through Isaiah, Jesus tells us that he was encouraged in this radical obedience by the knowledge that the sovereign Lord was near to him and would help him. That's the third point. His obedience would be vindicated despite his accusers. In other words, vindicated means he would be proved right or justified before their eyes. What might look like certain disgrace and shame in verse 7 would in fact be proved to be the opposite. The servant is so sure of the Lord's help for him that he breaks into a series of challenges or you might even say taunts to his accusers, doesn't he? Who will bring charges against me? Who is my accuser? Who is he that condemns me? Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen and he walked into it to fulfill the scriptures and make salvation possible. It's it's like, in a little way, like a movie hero who at the end is facing insurmountable odds in his opponents and he balls up his fists and he beckons the opponents to come on, bring it on. Only for Jesus, he didn't have balled up fists. He had outstretched palms that he offered to have nails driven through them for you and I. Finally, the servant announces in verse 9 that these accusers who have physically abused him and brought charges will become like worn out garments eaten up by moths. Have you ever seen garments that have been eaten up by moths? You know, you, you don't know it initially when you, when you go to pick up the garment. But if you pick it up, it just falls to pieces right in front of you. Or you hold it up, you know, you can see the people on the other side of the room through it. Okay? It falls apart. And that is exactly what will happen to his accusers. 
Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? 700 years before he was born, the prophecy was there. Jesus Jesus has known forever who would bring charges against him and who would slap him and who would spit on him and who would mock him and who would send him to the cross. He's always known it. Of course, the irony in this scene and setting is that the charges were correct, weren't they? Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why they sent him to the cross. It's the only fault that they could find with him. And the jury decided unanimously, guilty as charged, he is worthy of death. But God did help him. And God has proved him right, primarily in the resurrection and the place that God has given him as the servant son to rule and to judge. Again, from Philippians 2, 8 through 11, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we reach the end of what is a beautiful description of the servant's loving obedience, it it is a big tendency in us for many of us to ask the question, wow, How can I be obedient like the servant? I I need help from this servant Lord obeying the servant. How can I get this help for me in my efforts to obey? And and that, that is a very important thing to consider. But it's not the first and most important thing to understand about Christ's obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a German Christian in the persecuted church during the Nazi regime there in Germany, wrote a book called Life Together. And here's what he says. It is not in our life that God's help and presence must still be proved, but rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to Israel and to his son Jesus Christ than to seek what God intends for us today. And boy, if anybody needed help, they needed it. But they looked to Christ and what God had already done. The first thing to ponder and grasp and take hold of is that this perfectly obedient life of Christ is something that's credited 
to the life of everyone who has repented and believed in Christ. That is the primary help that God has to offer us. We are clothed in Christ, the scriptures say. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Christ's entire life of obedience, not just his death on the cross, works salvation for the sinner who believes. For example, let me give you just a little, a little example here. Imagine that I was an infinitely wealthy man. Use your imagination. Okay. And you had a huge debt to me. And you didn't have any money. If I forgive your debt, you're going to be really, really grateful. But you're not going to eat tonight either. Because you still don't have any money. You're out of debt, but you still don't have anything. The greater act of grace on my part would be to forgive your debt and to write you into my will. That you become an heir of mine and you have access to my unlimited wealth. Forgive the debt, an endless supply of money. That's better, isn't it? Christ's death on the cross turns away the wrath of God directed against your sin and Christ's life of perfect obedience is given to you as if it were your own life. Your life is hidden in Christ, you see. He is your life. His life is your life. So Christian, before you ask, how can I obey like Jesus? Look to this servant, Jesus And know that his life of obedience is yours to keep. Then and only then do we ask, how do we live our lives looking to him as a model of obedience? And certainly there's much we could learn there. It's amazing his obedience, his loving obedience to the Father. And there's so much in the New Testament we could turn to and learn about in order to to look to Jesus as a model. 1 Peter is all about suffering just like Jesus suffered in obedience to God. Hebrews speaks a lot about suffering in the race of following Jesus throughout our lives. But that's another sermon. Now, in the passage, I want to continue with you. Isaiah continues by addressing our obedience to the servant. This is in verse 10. And here the voice of Isaiah returns. It's almost like Isaiah interrupts the servant speaking. And he asks a crucial question. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? Do you you understand there in this, what would be the original languages in Hebrew, that would be considered parallelism. And so phrases are lined up together and they basically equate and give shades of meaning to basically the same thing. So, fearing the Lord... And obeying the servant are basically the same thing. But Jesus taught so many different things. How am I to obey Jesus? What am I to obey Jesus in? He he taught in so many different circumstances. How do we evaluate all the commands of Jesus? It is so important to know and understand that there's a hierarchy. Or perhaps you can think of it as categories 
of what Jesus taught and commanded. And we should ask first, what commands of Jesus bring new life? Or in what commands of Jesus does he offer eternal life? This is what we call the gospel. That's the category in scripture, gospel. And the gospel is illustrated in many passages, both in the Old Testament, slightly more veiled, in the New Testament, unveiled. Mark tells us at the outset of the gospel of his own that Jesus' overarching message was this, repent and believe the good news. That's what he came teaching, basically. Mark says if you want to sum it up in a line, that's what it is, repent and believe. More specifically, John records this conversation between Jesus and the people whom he had just miraculously fed. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Full stop. This category is called gospel. And it's simply a message to be believed and trusted. It's essentially promises from God, unilateral promises from God made to us. It brings eternal life when we believe it. The second category of Scripture is law. So there's gospel and then there's law. And law is given by God and reflects His holy character. So it's a good thing. It bids us to have certain attitudes and to do certain things like love God and love your neighbor. But the law, you see, it cannot give us new life because we're sinful. We're opposed to God's rule in our lives. Even for the Christian, you see, God's law can protect us. It can even paint a picture of the righteous life when we read about God's law in the Scriptures. But if we look to it to give us new life, it will fail us. The only place to flee at that point is to the message that brings life, and that's the gospel. Remember, think about it for just a minute, the thief on the cross. Did he have time to obey all those instructions of Jesus? Love your neighbor, love God, be patient, give generously? No. But he did obey, repent, and believe. And Jesus said, today you will see me in paradise. That's gospel. These two categories, law and gospel, are very important to understanding and properly interpreting all of Scripture Now, if you are not a Christian and you're here and and maybe, maybe you're drawn to Jesus, I hope you are. Maybe you've been reading portions of the Bible and you're trying to put into practice some of Jesus' good advice. You know, kind of like Jesus showing up on Oprah and giving advice. And, and you, you want to improve your life. You know, and you're trying to put into practice, love one another, don't worry, be patient, be generous. Have you noticed, if you're really honest with yourself, it doesn't really work. Now listen to me for just a minute before you're thinking, the preacher just said Jesus' words don't work. Okay, listen. It might have worked a few times. But the harder that you try to take Jesus' advice to do something that's law, 
to have a different attitude or to get better, you see that you can't do it. For every moment of patience that you eke out with those around you, there's ten more times of impatience. For every moment of kindness that you manage, you recognize ten more, no, twenty more, no, a hundred more instances of selfishness in your life, don't you? If you recognize what I've just described to you, you're close. You're so close. Because because you're realizing that you can't do it on your own, even with the best advice in the world. Because you're sinful. Now, I want to tell you the way out of it. I want to encourage you to stop trying to make a righteous life to justify yourself before God. Turn away from your rebellion and trust in the perfect loving obedience of the servant son. And his life will be yours. The last verse here in Isaiah 50 is it's ominous. In contrast to the obedient servant, there are others who are depicted here as rebellious. Rather than trust in the Lord in the darkness, like in verse 10, they set their own torches ablaze and walk in the light of their fires. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. This servant of the Lord will return one day without words that sustain the weary. He will come in power to judge. And if you or I insist on forging our own way in life, kindling our own fires, so to speak, like the passage says, rejecting the offer of receiving the servant's perfect life of obedience as your own, then we will be numbered with those who accused and condemned and killed Jesus. You see, essentially in that situation, we have put God in the dock. We've said, I don't need your life and I don't need your death. Why would you say I can't justify myself, God? Those will receive from His hand Just what the servant promises in verse 11. You will lie down in torment. Pray with me. Sovereign Lord, we praise you for the obedient life of Jesus. Obedience because he loved the Father and because they had decided together to rescue us. His life brings life, and His death washes away sin. Oh, Lord God, help us to listen carefully to His word that sustains the weary and obey it. Amen.